courage. I learned it from my adoptive mom. Hold my hand. You hold my hand. <laughs> Learn about adopting a team from foster care at AdoptUSKids.org. You can't imagine the reward. Brought to you by AdoptUSKids, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council. From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Free Expression with Jerry Baker. Hello and welcome to Free Expression with me, Jerry Baker, from the Wall Street Journal editorial page. A very happy new year to you all, and thank you very much for listening. I'm delighted you're joining us this week. If you're not already a subscriber, please do subscribe to Free Expression wherever you get your podcasts. This week, new year, new uncertainty for the Republican Party. As we are recording this, the House of Representatives continues to try to elect a new speaker for the 118th Congress. Tries, and at least so far, fails. It's Thursday afternoon, and the House has just for the eighth time rejected the attempt by Kevin McCarthy, the leader of the GOP caucus, to be elected speaker and break the deadlock as 20 or so of his House colleagues continue to block his election. We don't know how this will end, of course. Perhaps McCarthy will grant enough concessions to the rebels to get him over the line. Perhaps another member of Republican leadership will be able to unite the party. Perhaps they'll wind up electing Donald Trump by acclamation. Okay, that was a joke. But what does this latest episode of dysfunction in the party tell us about the condition of Republicans, and more importantly, about the state of the conservative cause in America? After the disappointment of the midterm elections, the prospect of a contentious battle for the 2024 presidential nomination between Donald Trump and perhaps several others, and the wider struggle between the new populist forces and the more traditional Republicans, is there a set of ideas and policies that the party can actually unite around? Is there a conservative synthesis in the making? Or is the right now just hopelessly fractured? Well, to talk about all this, I'm glad to say I'm joined this week by Ben Sass, who is now in his final few days as the Republican senator from Nebraska, having first been elected in 2014. He's about to take up a new role as president of the University of Florida. In his eight years in the Senate, Sass established a reputation as a free-thinking conservative. He was very critical of Donald Trump, declined to support him in 2016, and voted to convict him after his second impeachment following the Capitol Hill riot of January 26, 2021. Now, with master's and doctoral degrees in history and a prior stint as president of Midland University in Nebraska and his growing estrangement from the Trump-led GOP, it perhaps wasn't surprising when he announced recently that he was stepping down from the Senate to head the University of Florida. But his voice remains an important one in conservative circles. Just this week, he wrote an op-ed for the journal entitled America's True Divide, Pluralists versus Zealots, in which he argued that we've become dominated by extreme partisans on both sides who care only about exercising power and not about persuasion. Senator Sass joins me now. Senator, thanks very much for joining Free Expression. You bet. Thanks for having me. I want to get on to talk about your experience in Washington, obviously about the Republican Party, about the process, about conservative movement generally. And we'll talk a lot about that. You wrote a fascinating op-ed this week in the journal on the topic of the state of American politics. But inevitably, we tend to focus on things in the news. And right now, what's going on across the Capitol from you is absorbing everybody's attention. We've just seen, well, I should say we're recording this on uh, Thursday afternoon, and we've just seen the eighth vote for Speaker of the House of Representatives. And once again, Kevin McCarthy has failed to get the requisite majority. And we now wait another vote and see what happens next. Without getting into the ins and outs, the details of who's doing what, as you look at this, and as an American, you look at this spectacle that's going on. You know, there are some people who say, well, this is just democracy at work. It's messy. And, you know, it'll take time and we get there and people have got to be allowed to express their reservations and the Republicans have got a tiny majority in the House, so maybe it's not that unexpected. But others say this is an embarrassment. It's a reflection of everything that's dysfunctional about our politics. What's your reflection as you watch what's going on in the House? I mean, more the latter than the former, but I think both. I mean, I think the fundamental 
thing historians are going to think about and say about our time in 75 or 100 years from now is we're going through a digital revolution and it's unsettling not just technology but economics and culture and geography and what's happening in politics is way downstream from that so we don't need to fully nerd out about disintermediation and the way people get their information but in a ubiquitous information environment it turns out world views and trying to make sense of things and put stuff together in a coherent way is a is a limited commodity there's not enough of it. So a lot of people embrace conspiracy theories and craziness. But I think when we went from three to four channels, I'm the son of a football coach. Uh, when we went from three to four channels in the early 1980s, it was pretty glorious because it meant there was an extra football game we got to watch on Saturdays. But when you go from 1,500 to 2,000 channels, one of the fundamental things that happens is every channel is actually super narrow. And so the people that are on the supply side of information on those channels or on those Twitter feeds or social media, whatever's they're going narrow but deep in audience and fan service. And so there's a lot of crazy stuff that's sold all the time. And I think we need to admit that there's nothing like a majority political party in America. We have two legacy brands that are sort of living off the fumes of stuff that happened decades before. And while I have no sympathy for the 19 or 20 people that are doing the craziest stuff, trying to keep their from being an organized majority and therefore an elected speaker, and therefore, frankly, constitutionally, we kind of don't have a House of Representatives right now, which is bad for the Republic. I don't have sympathy for those 20, but I also get why nobody wants to vote for a guy who has never articulated a positive vision of anything. Nobody is crying out for ambition for ambition's sake. And that's a huge part of what this event is that's happening in the House. I'll pull up here, but I think we need to recognize that there is no constructive majority coalition. What we really have in America right now is a constant pendulum swing against whoever has most recently been in power. They get elected as the lesser of two evils. That's why people are winning elections. And then they fill their White Houses or their congressional staffs with a bunch of 23-year-old fools who live online all the time. And those people believe they've been given some new mandate to transform America. And that's crazy. And so it creates a new counter-majority, which is really just an anti-majority. And so there isn't anything like a majority for the Republicans in the House right now. What there is is a majority of Americans that didn't think Nancy Pelosi should remain speaker. That's different than having a, a constructive plan in the House. So right now, the no's have no plan. They just want chaos. And Kevin doesn't have a plan either. Is, is there even a coherent Republican Party? And well, we know, obviously, political parties are coalitions of disparate interests and views and coalitions come and go and different coalitions come to form and reform. We've obviously seen a bit of a trauma in the Republican Party in the last five or six years. Donald Trump was very successful in articulating a kind of populism that then propelled him to the White House, but then things, as it were, fell apart. But do you think, as you look at what's going on in the House, and more broadly, as you look at the Republican Party in the country, is it a functioning party? You just said Kevin McCarthy doesn't really have a vision or an agenda. These The no votes don't have a vision or agenda. What's the Republican Party for? Yeah, so let me, let me say what I think the Republican Party and more fundamentally the conservative movement should be for. But before I do that, let me just say that I don't think either of these parties are anything like majority parties. When you ask the American people, are you more Republican or more Democrat, and you don't give them a choice for none of the above, none of the above still wins in a landslide plurality. Uh, the last time I saw this polling done, 
in any detail was, I think, last June. And again, when you do not give none of the above as an option, it still gets like 46% of the vote. Dems get about 28, ours get 25 or 26. So both of these political parties are like fully fueled up 747 sitting on a tarmac with an unguarded cockpit. And that's what happened in the 2016 election. The ultimate Republican nominee and then the president, Donald Trump, had a ceiling of somewhere between 28 and 35, 36 percent for most of the Republican primary cycle. If we'd been running two or three candidates instead of 17, he would have never won the nomination. And then he was ultimately elected in 2016, not because people were for him, but they were just more against Hillary Clinton than they were against him. Statistically, they were the two most unpopular major party presidential nominees ever. And so the guy won, not because of a constructive vision, but just because he wasn't Hillary Clinton. And four years later in 2020, we did the same thing again. Joe Biden didn't win the presidency. The American people just said, we don't want that old guy who screams all the time anymore. And so right now we have a whole bunch of that kind of screaming in the House. I'll stop with this, but to your question about what the Republican Party should be for, it should first and foremost be for a constitutionalism that affirms universal human dignity and therefore limited government. We're blessed with unbelievable constitutional arrangements that separate power both vertically and horizontally so that all the institutions where your readers live and raise their kids and start small businesses and volunteer at a soup kitchen or the Little League, those institutions are the center of life. D.C. is supposed to be a framework for ordered liberty. And right now we're not articulating that kind of constitutional vision of what both parties, but especially the one on the right, should be trying to conserve. Well, this is a bipartisan problem, but I think you can also look at the last two years and Look at a striking contrast between the Democrats and the Republicans. The Democrats won two years ago with exactly the same margin that the GOP have just won, and they didn't really win the Senate. The Senate was split 50-50, and President Biden did win, exactly as you say, but only by essentially not being Donald Trump. And they managed somehow to unite behind an agenda, which was remarkable. I mean, whether you agree with it or not, and I'm probably like me, you disagree with a lot of it, but a big spending agenda, an agenda which got them critical judges and a justice proved in the Senate. They managed generally to promote their broader kind of progressive agenda. They seem to be able to exercise the kind of discipline and solidarity on the Democratic side to advance an agenda, even though, as you say, there isn't, there plainly isn't a majority, I think it's fair to say, for what they're trying to do. The Republicans somehow don't seem to have any of the kind of will or the solidarity to come together and even to resist that maybe, but certainly not to offer any other kind of ambition. It does seem to be a slightly one-sided problem at the moment. So I half agree with you. So there's both a symmetry and an asymmetry on the two sides. The reason why I said earlier that the constitutional defense of limited government is even more of a burden for my side, a healthy burden, a, a calling than the other side, is because we need to be the party that is articulating gratitude over grievance. And if you have a whole bunch of neil who just want to burn everything down. There's nothing conservative about that. It's fundamentally radical. What the Democrats have, so to partly agree with you and partly disagree, is incremental growth of government is a way that a whole bunch of people who are aligned behind a policy vision of growing the center, growing the top, growing the federal government, growing the bureaucracy, when they have their fights between half a loaf and a full loaf, they can take half a loaf and then go back to the table and do the same thing again. But I don't really believe, you're right, that I am saying they don't have um, majority support from the public, but I also don't believe that they're internally united. 
I say that as somebody who is very, very grateful to the people of Nebraska for allowing me to represent them the last eight years and serve on the Intelligence Committee. The Intelligence Committee is a super healthy place because we don't have cameras. So there's no sort of grandstanding assholishness that gets you credit. There's no incentive structure to try to just do a quick quip and put down. But I know a lot of moderate Democratic senators. I don't know if the number's 12, 13, 14, or 15, but it's in that range. And yet there are two that ever say any of it in public. Why? Because they're just as cowed by their activists and by their media-addicted, very online tale of a bell curve. And right now, what happens with moderate center-left Democrats and never having to admit their disagreements with the far left is they've always got the excuse of MAGA craziness. And so as long as they can nutpick about something that's happening on the opposite extreme, they don't have to get to coherence inside their party and they don't have to admit the difference in diversity that actually exists intellectually and at a policy level. Coming back to our side, though, and then I'll, I'll stop here, but conservatives can be coherent. We can have a governing vision. But the party itself doesn't really exist because grievance isn't an agenda. And right now, the Republican Party post about fall of 2015 to summer of 2016, what it really is, is increasingly a grievance coalition against stuff that happens on the left or sometimes doesn't even happen on the left. There's so much conspiracy nuttiness out there. But that doesn't ever add up to a constructive vision. The Democrats also don't have a constructive vision they can sell, but they can unite behind half a loaf of growing government this week and then coming back for another Omni next year. You talked about this in your op-ed in the journal this week, and you've just mentioned it about the way in which technology and media have changed has created a different set of incentive structures in politics that today we seem to have created a system in which the easy rewards are to be out there expressing outrage, expressing grievances stating your place as a victim, owning the libs, you know, on the conservative side or owning conservatives on the other side with a clever tweet or an appearance on a cable TV news show, that we don't have classes of politicians who are like legislators and who don't who want to go to Washington or to state capitals and make laws or govern or change things and improve things. They want to go there. They want to get their shot on cable TV as much as they can. They want to get their social media kicks and hits and all of that. And for many practitioners, politics is not really about governing anymore. It's about kind of performance. Do you think that's, that's right? I do think that's what's happening. I think that there are a bunch of zealots who thrive on the chaos of our current moment. We've always had crazy people. We've always had angry people. But what's new is two or four or six percent of the public that's really, really loud and really angry have new tools at their disposal. And they often look so much larger than they are. A perfect example is just looking at what the actual viewership is on cable news. The most watched political programming in America America is usually Tucker Carlson, and he basically never gets to 1% of the public. A really big night for cable news, and Fox at night is much bigger than CNN and MSNBC at night, but when you put all of them together, they sometimes clock in at 6 million viewers total, not per network, total, in a nation of 330 million people. That's 1.9% of the public. The same thing is true in Twitter. There's an asymmetry where a tiny number of the loudest people, and you don't go viral 
individual by admitting that there are policy trade-offs, a tiny number of people generate almost all of the tweets. More than 99% of political tweets are produced by about 5.5% of the public. And so there's the old joke adage that Washington, D.C. is Hollywood for ugly people. America depends on civic pluralism. America depends on normies. If the republic is going to be passed on to the next generation, and I think it will, but we're going to have to figure out how you do media and information consumption in a world of ubiquitous information, as opposed to always rewarding the people who want to go narrower but deeper. There will always be a market for screaming, but we need the supply side of politicians to realize that there is a super, super, super quiet majority that wants one cheer for politics. Three cheers for America, but one cheer for politics. Is that true, Senator? Because, I mean, you're right. Obviously, those numbers that you talk about, whether for the star cable TV hosts or whatever, a relatively small portion of the population. But the views they espouse and the kind of the messages they put across do seem to resonate with very large sections of the population. Take the most obvious example is, I think, the latest polls and numbers may be down slightly, but I think still comfortably more than two-thirds of Republicans think the 2020 election was stolen by Joe Biden. That's two-thirds of Republicans. How many is that? 20, 30, 40, 50 million people? I mean, that's not a cable TV news audience. And it's not just that. It's obviously many of those kind of messages, people who subscribe to sort of broader conspiracy theories or what we might, what you and I might describe as more extreme theories. It's not just this narrow, siloed section of the population believes it. It does seem to be quite widely held. This isn't this the larger problem that this division, this mutual hostility and this mutual distaste or indeed kind of hatred that people seem to have for each other is much wider than just those cable TV audiences, isn't it? It's pretty well embedded in the population. So I take your point about some of the polling. I haven't seen recent polling, but I take your point that a lot of the polling about the allegedly stolen election, which obviously wasn't stolen, is a big problem. And it's a counterpoint to some of what I'm saying. But I think some of why these conspiracy theories thrive, whether they're the typical 8-ish percent of the left and 6-ish percent of the right that are very online, paying attention to politics on a daily basis, those people sometimes become proxy placeholders for other people's political worldviews when they return to politics. And I think we have to understand that a lot of this is a function of our media consumption habits, right? Through the myriad outlets at our fingertips, we now have a changed conception of community. And so my experience is strange because I'm simultaneously simultaneously the highest vote getter in the history of Nebraska and the most censured public official in the history of Nebraska. And it turns out because people know that politics isn't the center of my worldview, they put a decent bit of trust in me. I've won all 93 counties both times I've run for office in 2014 and in 2020. And I think it's not chiefly because you know, my state is obviously far Trumpier than I am. It isn't chiefly because they think I have the right view on everything in politics. It's that they know I'm a dad and they know something about my theology and they know that I'm addicted to Husker football. They know that I drive a garbage truck and I drive an Uber and I vend at Nebraska football games and I work ag manufacturing. So they see me as a whole person, so they cut me some slack. But if you reduce it to simply politics, I think we live in an incredibly lonely, siloed time where people know much less about their neighbors than they know about viral nut jobs who reinforce polarized political opinions. And so the stolen election example, which is much more extreme, just far closer to the middle of the electorate, than most of the stuff we've been talking about so far on this podcast. I think that is one where people trust that the information they get from the loudest people might be representative because those people are the ones putting in the time ostensibly doing politics for them. So that's a, it's a pretty bad harbinger. We're going to take a short break there, but when we come back, we'll talk more with Senator Ben Sass about the future of conservatism. Stay with us. 
Courage. I learned it from my adoptive mom. Hold my hand. You hold my hand. <laughs> Learn about adopting a team from foster care at AdoptUSKids.org. You can't imagine the reward. Brought to you by AdoptUSKids, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council. You're listening to Free Expression with Jerry Baker. Don't forget, you can listen to the latest episode anytime on your smart speaker. Just say, play the Opinion Free Expression podcast. Now, back to Jerry Baker. I'm back with outgoing Senator Ben Sass, who's about to leave Washington for the greener climbs of the University of Florida. But we're talking about the future of conservatism. Question, looking back at 2022 and looking forward to 2024, and then I want to get on to some of these sort of deeper philosophical questions. But how did you interpret the, I think most Republicans, they would consider a very disappointing set of election results in 2022, the loss of ground in the Senate, the failure to get any kind of a big majority in the House, the consequences of which obviously we're seeing right now, loss of some governor's races. It did look to those of us, uh, Wall Street Journal editorial pages made this point very clearly. I think you have two. It did look like a repudiation, particularly of a lot of those Trump-backed candidates and indeed more broadly of the kind of Trump narrative about the stolen election and all of that. Of course, on the other side, there are those who say, no, 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 it wasn't that. It was the you know, Republican Party didn't have a positive message. It kept just attacking the Biden administration over inflation, but it didn't have anything positive to say. Looking back at that and then projecting forward to next year now, as we're in 23 already to 2024 and the, and the Republican primary, is the lesson primarily about Trump and his message? And if so, are Republican voters going to learn it? Or do you expect sort of more kind of chaos in the Republican Party over the next year or so? I mean, my party in 2022 snatched defeat from the jaws of victory, and one man owns that blame. I mean, Donald Trump between 2018, 2020, and 2022 is indisputably the biggest loser in the history of American politics. There's never anybody who's lost anything close to as much as a guy who used to have a majority in the House, a majority in the Senate. He was in the White House. He managed to lose everything because grievance is old. Grievance is boring. Grievance isn't inspiring. And grievance doesn't fit in a party whose message has historically been, we're for limited government because we think the most interesting things in life happen in the real centers of life where people are living and working and raising their kids and worshiping. And so if you are a party that's message is Washington can't fix it all, and the guy stands up and says, everything is broken in this country and I alone can fix it, people know that's BS, right? And so grievance doesn't solve any problem. And I think it's important to recognize that we are 30 years into a kind of overreach and repulsion politics where every single first president's midterm, except for W after 9-11, when we had national unity and the President Bush handled 9-11 well, except for that moment, every single time for more than three decades, two years into a new administration, the public says, holy crap, we elected you as the less bad of two candidates two years ago, and then you said you had an, a sweeping mandate to transform America, and you filled your White House with 24-year-olds who don't know anything, and they tried to constantly grow government and exacerbate the culture wars. The public hates that, and that's why there's always a correction. Until this time, how did we snatch defeat from the draws of victory in 2022 for the first time in more than three decades? Because we ran some really, really crappy candidates who just talked constantly about their grievances about 
about a falsely claimed stolen election from two years ago. I think a lot of voters in my party are realizing that you probably have to persuade a bunch of people in the middle. An angry old guy issuing press releases from Mar-a-Lago is not persuading anybody of anything new and visionary. You yourself are going to be in the heart of the, uh, the in the sort of crucible of Republican politics and uh, very shortly you're going down to be president of the University of Florida. It's going to be an interesting place to be. I'm not expecting you to come out here with an endorsement, but you've seen what Ron DeSantis has done and you've seen how he got electorally rewarded for what he's done. I mean, with again, without specifically obviously getting into his prospects or whether you think of, of any putative campaign by him. Is that record, do you think, from what you've seen in Florida, the kind of thing that you think the Republicans actually could unite around? Yeah, you are right that I have taken a Mitch Daniels-like pledge of partisan celibacy going forward. So I leave the Senate next week. And so I'm contractually agreed to be prohibited from talking about partisan politics um, going forward. There's a pretty healthy board governance system. Yeah, I haven't spoken with Ron since 2016 when I was running for office and he was new in the House. I got to know him then. And then we overlapped in the Congress from 2014 to 16. And then when he started running for governor full-time in Florida, I haven't spoken with the guy in six, six and a half years. But I do think what's happened in Florida is pretty darn compelling, right? There's been more capital flows to the state of Florida in the last 36 months than to any geography in human history. Florida is booming in a ton of ways, which some of it speaks to climate and sunshine, but a lot of it speaks to regulatory environment and optimism. And Florida has a lot of dynamic American get-it-done optimism, and nobody thinks they look to Tallahassee to solve every problem. There's no one there foolish enough to say, I alone can fix it. They say, look at all these people, internal migrants and new migrants, internal from other parts of the United States, and migrant communities to Florida that say, we want to build something special, and we believe in an America that says we're in 330 ensouled people who have universal dignity, and we have agency. We have grit. We can build stuff. There is no sort of grievance and whining spirit in Florida that I've seen. You're leading the Senate. You've been very critical of the Senate. In that op-ed that I mentioned that you wrote for the Journal this week, and you talk about the challenge we have of this divide between zealots and pluralists and you, all the sort of stuff we've been talking about, the role that social media and technology has played in kind of siloizing and kind of dividing people. And you say this in that op-ed throughout all this, the Senate has been AWOL at every other disruptive moment in American history. The Senate's had something to contribute. You talk about the great challenges you faced up to by people like Webster Clay, Chase Smith, Dirksen, Moynihan. And you say great senators of the past stood up for ideas, not mere partisanship. Today, presidential hopefuls speechify to an empty chamber, blast fundraising emails during performative hearings, and yet all day to what end? To go on cable and yell anew all night. That's pretty harsh about your colleagues. How do you change that? Well, first of all, we shouldn't have cameras everywhere in the institution. The incentive structure is wrong. It makes people act like short-term folks when the whole purpose of the Senate as a deliberative body in our constitutional structure is to be about 2035, 2040, and 2045 issues. It's supposed to be a place where you, with six-year terms, are insulated from constant short-termism. And so we need a cultural reform in the Senate. And one of the examples of that would be to stop putting everything on TV and cutting it up for fundraising clubs to send out tonight. But let's back up a step. I am a three-cheers-for-America kind of guy. And frankly, I'm a two-cheers-for-the-Senate-as-originally-envisioned kind of guy. I'm just one cheer for how the Senate functions right now because all Americans 
Americans should be zero cheers for tribalism, and tribalism is also capturing the Senate. Historically, tribalism in the House leads to factions that can be put together as a coalition. So when the House is broken, it's kind of always supposed to be that way. But the Senate is supposed to be a place where folks take a long-term perspective. And there is really good news, which is that Americans can and will ultimately figure out how to consume information in this new ubiquitous media environment. We build institutions. The zealous central planners aren't the ones who will save us. They aren't the ones who will build our future. The country belongs to a whole bunch of optimistic, pluralist, institution builder doers. And the Senate's job is supposed to play defense against people who would come in and say, hey, if something's broken in the world, we better grow government because government's the only institution that can fix anything. The Senate's job is to resist that. And right now, the Senate is caught up increasingly in the whirlwind. But I am optimistic that this problem will be fixed. I mean, it's going to take a while. Um, and it's going to need a lot of demand side slaps from the electorate on Senate idiots grandstanding for the short term. But you and I have talked previously about the Chinese Communist Party and the technology race we face with them. And the Senate has done a lot of work to move the Congress and the government more broadly and to move the American people. It's just almost all of that work originates in the Intelligence Committee, where we don't have cameras. And so senators can actually act like senators. They can deliberate. They don't need to be phony and puffed up and claim they know the answer to every question. When there's no camera rolling, people actually ask a lot of real honest questions. Hey, Director Burns, head of the CIA. Hey, General Nakasone, head of the NSA. I may have said that wrong before. CIA Burns, and Nakasone, NSA. They have full-time day jobs, and they're super smart, and we're supposed to be the oversight board for them. And so we should ask questions that are genuine questions about the pivot from primarily counterterrorism at the CIA to primarily long-term technology race with the CCP. That happens in the Intel Committee. That's good news. But it doesn't happen in the broader Senate because the broader Senate isn't acting like a Senate. Finally, Senator, more broadly, how do we fix the problem again that you, you know, you've spoken about so passionately and so eloquently that, that fix this problem of this pluralism versus zealotry. You talk about, again, how these leading figures in politics are more interested in power on both sides, whether, as you say, whether it's a sort of strongman idea on the right or authoritarian, overbearing government on the left. They're more interested in power than the kind of persuasion that, that is associated with pluralism. And you go through all of those factors, the changes in technology, the changes in media, the way in which people you know, become increasingly kind of isolated in their lives and much less com- sense of a community. Those do seem to be deep-seated trends that are not going to be turned around. How do we get back to a model of political pluralism that can actually start to maybe heal some of these problems in the country? I don't mean to sound Pollyannish, but the heart of it is that normal people need to show up more and roll their eyes at the crazies. Right. What has happened is we've replaced a Cronkite model of media consumption with a casino model. And so in a casino, there are no clocks. Right. You want to keep somebody there forever until you've drained their whole savings account. Right now in the attention economy, the small share of people, about 14 percent, who pay attention to politics every day, they get all the voice. And we need the 86 percent that are like, no, 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 I'm a one cheer for politics guy, not a three cheers for politics guy, three cheers 
international politics, people don't understand America. They're about power. We're not about power. We're about dignity, about persuasion, about entrepreneurship, about innovation, about love, about community. And most of the interesting things in the world aren't done by power. And But you need government. You just need government to do a small number of limited things and then get the heck out of the way. The way we participate in politics as citizens should be a lot more like eating our vegetables than like having a cotton candy sugar high. And right now we're allowing the cotton candy sugar diluted drunk people to have almost all the voice. And so I think we need normies to recognize what's going on and they need to come more often and they need to mock the crazies. And I, of course, wish my party had won the majority in the Senate 60 days ago. But the fact is some of why it didn't happen is because we ran a bunch of really bad candidates. 2022 showed that there is an appetite for normal, that there's an appetite for sanity, that there's an appetite for boring in our politics. Normal people decided that they weren't going to go along with electing crazy candidates just because they did want to slap Joe Biden and his administration around for lying about the fact that inflation was really bad, it wasn't a figment of their imagination, and it wasn't going to be resolved in 60 days. But when the electorate was only given the choices of a bunch of crazy candidates wanting to relitigate 2020 and claims of the stolen election, they said, I'm sorry, that's a, that's a bridge too far. We need to be speaking to those folks. There are a whole bunch of one cheer for politics people out there. I submit it's a supermajority of the country. Right now, we just aren't running the right candidates. Finally, Senator, you're just about to go and as I say head the University of Florida. You've, of course, described yourself as a proud Nebraskan and a Husker fan. I have to ask you, what happens if the 2026 national championship is the Huskers against the Gators? What, what are you, you going to do? You know, if it's a national championship game, we don't have to fire our AD. So Scott Strickland is a special guy, the AD of Florida, but he understands well that if Nebraska football and Gator football or Husker volleyball and Gator volleyball gets scheduled outside of a national championship game, he's dead. And so we'll be fine to meet for the national championship and then we'll figure out you know, how I die a thousand deaths. But right now it's clear that you can be all Husker baseball and all Gator baseball because it doesn't look like we're going to meet up and nobody's on their deathbed about, about baseball. Senator Ben Sesbrett, thanks so much for joining Free Expression. Thank you, Jerry. I enjoyed it. Well, that's it for us this week. Thanks very much indeed for joining me, Jerry Baker, from the Wall Street Journal editorial page on this edition of Free Expression. Please do join us again next week when we'll take another deep look at the issues that are driving our world. Thank you very much and goodbye.